And as we begin, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. We thank you that you speak to us, that you've spoken to us um, through your word, through the prophets, through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray now that you would speak to us afresh, that you would fill our thoughts and our minds and our hearts with the wonders of your gospel. Amen. I'd um, like to begin this morning. Uh, sorry, there should be some slides. Are they working? Great. I'd like to begin this morning by asking you a very important question. Are you ready? Okay. Next slide. This glass, is it half empty or half full? Okay, put your hands up if you think it's half full. Hands up if you think it's half empty. Ooh, I, I think the half fulls have it. Um, but it, it's an important question, isn't it? Um, it's maybe more important than we sometimes give it credit for. Are you a glass half full kind of person or a glass half empty kind of person? Are you an optimist? Cheerful, sunny side of life. Or are you a bit of a pessimist? Maybe a bit more like Eeyore. Well, maybe um, you can relate to this Savage Chickens cartoon on the next slide. Uh, the first chicken says, life is full of possibility. And the other chicken replies, it's true. So many terrible things are possible. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Savage Chickens, um, if you don't know it, um, Doug Savage, he, he does this cartoon and he puts them all on post-it notes. Um, that's why they're little um, yellow squares. Uh, but they're great, aren't they? I wonder which can you relate to? I guess most of us um, can relate to the optimistic, can't we? Um, optimistic, even though you might not call yourself an optimist, um, maybe you're just hopeful and you like to think the best of people. Uh, or for the others of us in a bit more of the minority, maybe you're pessimistic, though I guess you probably wouldn't call yourself pessimistic. Maybe you'd describe yourself, well, as more of a realist. But I guess, in reality, we're probably somewhere more in the middle, aren't we? Somewhere in between. But yet, even still, most of us, um, well, we tend to naturally gravitate either towards the optimist or the pessimist um, in it. And of course, the reason for that will be due to a whole host of things, won't it? The experiences we've had. Or maybe the experiences of our parents and the things that they've taught us. All of these sorts of things, they affect our outlook on life. So I've got another question for us. Should Christians be hopeful optimists or realistic pessimists? I wonder what you think. A little murmur there, but well, I'm not going to ask you. Let's keep that question floating around in our minds um, as we continue. Okay, so after a break last week for harvest, um, we're back in Paul's letter to the Philippians today. Uh, I've got, yes, there's a picture um, of Philippi. Um, that's what it would have looked like, roughly, uh, when Paul wrote in the early first century. Well, if you're struggling to remember two weeks ago, don't worry. Uh, we looked at the first 11 verses of Philippians, and we saw that the letter is one of joy. Paul is so thankful for the Christians that live in Philippi. They're a delight to him. So he praises God for them and for their partnership in the gospel. He thanks God for them. And he prays that their love for God would grow and that it would grow in understanding and that that would happen so that they would be pure and so that they would be blameless. 
And it's a great prayer that we could pray uh, for each other and for other Christians that we know. But after talking about the Philippians, Paul now turns his attention to himself. And his situation, situation isn't great. You see, Paul's in jail. There's a picture of a jail. Not a nice jail. I think the jail bars were rusting and things like that. Paul was in jail, probably in Rome. And four times in chapter one, Paul talks about being imprisoned, about being in chains. In fact, he refers to his imprisonment all the way through this passage. And he also mentions that it's the palace guard or the imperial guard that is guarding him. This would be a bit like being locked up in Fort Knox. No chance of escape. Now, you probably don't need me to tell you that being a prisoner in Roman times wasn't very nice. It was a bit horrible. Dirty, smelly, dangerous. You didn't have the rights that you've got today. I wonder how you'd expect Paul to react to being locked up. If your desire would be to go out and to preach the gospel, then suddenly you find yourself locked down, not able to do that. Not only that, but of course, Paul was an innocent man. He hadn't actually done anything wrong. He just explained the gospel. You can imagine him to be bitter, couldn't you? Maybe even pleading with the Philippians to write letters to their MPs, demanding that he gets an early release. But let's read verses 12 to 14 again. Paul says this. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul sounds a bit like an optimist here, doesn't he? Yes, of course, it's terrible, it's horrible being in this jail at the emperor's pleasure. But look at all the good that's happened as a result. The gospel is actually advancing because of it. All the guards know that I'm in prison because of Jesus. You see, remember, Paul was a missionary. Paul was an evangelist. That's what he loved to talk about, to talk about Jesus. Paul wanted to travel everywhere he could, all across the known world, to tell, to tell people about Jesus. Everyone and anyone, whoever would listen. And you might think that being in prison would cause Paul to become dismayed. He couldn't travel and tell others about Jesus. But in fact, the opposite occurred. Paul was overjoyed. You see, his captors actually became his captive audience. Every few hours, a new soldier would be chained beside Paul. They couldn't escape. So what did Paul do? Well, he turned to the person chained to him, and he told them everything he could for the next couple of hours about Jesus. And when that guard was changed and another one came, well, he started again and he told them all about Jesus and the next and the next. And you can probably guess what the conversation in the imperial canteen was all about. Have you been given an earful by that new prisoner, Paul? What do you think about this bloke, Jesus? Is there anything in it? It's a bit strange, but maybe there is. 
And before you knew it, the whole palace guard and everyone else knew that Paul was in chains because he preached about Jesus. And of course, they knew what Paul preached. They knew who Jesus was, the Son of God, and they knew what Jesus had done, that he died on the cross for their sins, for their salvation. And as news of this spread, well, other Christians became more bold, more confident. They became fearless in sharing the gospel with people. They thought, well, if Paul's in prison and he's continuing to share the gospel, well, that's kind of as worse as it can get. That's the worst it can get. They became bold to do it the same. Now, I've noticed um, probably over the past six, seven months, um, during our own, I guess you could call it, lockdown, or kind of own almost imprisonment in some respects, that there's a huge temptation for us. We're currently in social restrictions. We know from the news that there's a threat of another lockdown. And there's not much we can do. So we think, well, let's just stop doing ministry. Let's just close everything down. It would be easy to do that, wouldn't it? And as I've been wrestling with this, Paul's behaviour in these verses has greatly challenged me. See, he got on with ministry and evangelism wherever he was and in whichever situation he found himself in. And that encouraged others to do the same. You see, it's possible to be a Christian wherever you are and whenever you are, to share your faith with people wherever and whenever. There's a danger, isn't it, to think, well, we'll do it later when it's easier. It'll be so much easier for me being a vicar when the restrictions have gone, I can come and visit you, we can put on lots of events. But God's saying, well, actually, what can we do now within these restrictions? What can we do now? Let's think a little bit outside the box. How can we continue to do evangelism, to do ministry, to share our faith with those around us? So here's a great prayer for all of us to be praying, and one that I've been trying to pray for myself. It's this, Lord, how do you want to use us at the moment? Not in six months' time when life returns to normal. How do you want to use us now in the midst of these restrictions? I wonder maybe um, in a few months' time, would we be able to say with Paul in verse 12, that what has happened to us has actually served to advance the gospel. How might God want to use us this month, this week, maybe even today? Well, okay, so Paul's in jail and he continues his letter and things seem to go from bad to worse. And in verse 15, he says this, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Imagine having enemies who try to stir up trouble for you. And now imagine that these enemies aren't people of another religion, but they're apparently Christians. Maybe even Christians within your own congregation. People who profess to love the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who supposedly submit to him and desire to serve him in everything they do. But yet their behaviour doesn't quite add up to that, at least not in the way that they relate to you. I guess maybe you've experienced such things at work. Maybe another employee who envies you. Maybe they envied your role or they envied the relationship that you had with your boss. They saw you as a rival and so they tried to cause problems for you. Of course, they should have been working for the better of the company, shouldn't they? If you were doing a good work, well, they should have been encouraging with that so that the company would thrive and prosper. But selfish ambition, it never works like that. Sure, it doesn't. Envy and rivalry. These things, well, they stem from selfishness and self-centeredness. When you envy somebody else, the last thing you'll worry about is the good of the company. And for these rival preachers with Paul, well, the good of the gospel is the last thing on their mind. They envy Paul. They envy his position as an apostle, as this amazing missionary evangelist. Now that he's in jail, it's their chance to get one over him. So they preach in a way that causes him problems in jail. We don't know exactly what they did or how they did it, but presumably it was an attempt to cause Paul problems when he did eventually make it to trial. Keep him in jail a bit longer, and then we can become the famous ones instead. How would you respond if you were Paul? How maybe have you responded if this has happened to you with family or with friends or with colleagues? When your supposed co-workers try to trip you up and land you in bother? Well, Paul's response might shock us a bit. On the next slide, he says this. The former preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. You see, instead of self-centeredness, Paul is selfless. His mind is so firmly focused on Jesus and the gospel that he actually rejoices. Every time he hears that Christ is being preached, he celebrates. It doesn't matter who does it. It doesn't matter what their motives are. As long as more people hear about Jesus and what he has done, as long as that happens, Paul is happy. I asked earlier, Um, whether you were a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person. But Paul is more than an optimist, isn't he? Um, Sometimes when you you ask that half full, half empty question, there's two options, but there's kind of three. There's the smart aleck answer as well. Um, Take a look at this slide. Half air, half water. Technically, the glass is always full. But this is a bit like Paul, isn't it? Rather than seeing it half empty or half full, he sees it as completely full. He sees it as great. He's more than optimistic, isn't he? Even when things are bad, really bad, he's optimistic. Now, before we look at the end of this passage, I want to ask the question, what about us? How should we apply this passage to ourselves? 
What difference should this passage make to us? I guess um, sometimes when we read the Bible, and certainly when we read one of the stories, maybe in the Old Testament, um, we think and we see what the main character does. And whatever that person does, well, that's our learning point. That's what we should try and do as well. Unless, of course, the character does something wrong, in which case, well, we have to do the opposite, don't we? So King David, well, he was a good man. Be like him. King Saul, he was a bad man. Don't be like him. Though it's not always as black and white as that, is it? David had his faults. Saul had his positive bits. But if we try to do our application like that, what do we learn then from this passage? Is our takeaway message that Paul was optimistic even when things were dire. So we should be optimistic even when we don't feel like it. Maybe you could relate to this picture on the next slide. You're pretending to smile, but inside you're really not. Are we just supposed to force ourselves to be more optimistic? What do you think? Well, rather than thinking about Paul and so copying him more, when we read the Bible, it's so much better to see what we learn about God and so trust him more. You see, remember, God is the reason for Paul being optimistic. So what do we learn about God? Well, let's have a look at the next verses. Because if you thought Paul was insane for being so optimistic, he's about to take it to the extreme. He says this in verses 18 to 21. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's going to keep rejoicing because God is going to deliver him. Well, okay, I guess that's a bit optimistic, isn't it? But, but fair enough. I can, I can see why he would hope that, why he would think that. But he expects not to be ashamed, but to be courageous so that Christ will be exalted by him, by life or by death. Hold on a second, by death? Paul hopes that Christ will be exalted by his death if need be. That sounds a bit morbid, doesn't it? But then that final verse, verse 21, that takes this optimism to the extreme. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's a whole different level of optimism, isn't it? Seeing death as gain, seeing death as something good. Our society runs from death, doesn't it? So much so that we don't tend to talk about it in polite company. But what Paul says is fairly countercultural, isn't it? If you're a Christian, this shouldn't surprise you, what Paul has been talking about over and over again in these verses. What he's been talking about is this, advancing the gospel. He's been talking about Christ. He's been talking about the Lord. He said about proclaiming the gospel, preaching Christ, 
defending the gospel about God's provision and about Christ being exalted in life and in death. See, Paul is focused on Jesus. He's focused on the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, of course, it's the good news about Jesus Christ. That dying on Good Friday is good news. Because Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to make us right with God. And then Jesus rose to life again on Easter Sunday. Jesus has power over death. We may have eternal life. Remember, Jesus, well, he knew what it was like to be chained, didn't he? He was also rejected and mocked, had people against him. And he was crucified. He died a terrible death. But all of this was part of God's good plan. This is how God works. God uses things like this. And Christ was exalted when he rose again. You see, chains cannot stop God. God will use even chains. Rejection and trouble won't stop God. He can use them as well. Even death does not stop God. He's used Jesus' death for the best news the world has ever known. Of course he could use Paul's death. He could even use our death for his purposes. See, God works through suffering, even death. And it is his plan to bring more people to him and to eternal life. And Paul knows that that can only happen if more people hear about Jesus. That's why talking about Jesus is so important. Proclaiming the gospel, telling others about Christ. And that's the most important thing in the world. That's why Paul's perspective has changed. And that's how our perspective can change as well. That's why we can rejoice when we hear of Christians in other countries going through difficulties, but the gospel being proclaimed. See, even sufferings God can use for his glory. Now, I'm very aware that I've run out of time um, to talk about verses 22 and 26 um, this morning. I'll refer to them instead in the Zoom service later on. But before we finish, what about us? What about you and what about me? Well, maybe you're really struggling at the moment or suffering. Maybe it's all of these restrictions. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's being close to death and longing for heaven. Or maybe it's something else that no one, no one here has a clue about that you struggle with alone. Well, in the midst of these things, Jesus wants to be exalted. You see, whether we live or whether we die, Christ can be exalted in us. Not just by what we do or by how we live, but even more importantly, by what we say and how we point people to Jesus. Do we tell people about Jesus? Do we pray that this would happen through us? If maybe you shy away from that, why is that? Is it maybe that you don't know just how wonderful Jesus is? If so, then it's my prayer that Jesus would show himself more truly to you. Or maybe it's just frustrations at the moment. 
You see, Christ can be exalted in whatever situation we find ourselves in at the moment. And I'm not saying that this isn't going to necessarily be easy. In fact, Paul was um, so honest that he asks for um, the Philippians to pray that he wouldn't be ashamed, that he would have courage. He knew that it would be difficult. But there are two things that helped him and that can help us as well. The prayers of the, of the Philippians, he knew they were praying. See, other people's prayers, us praying for others, is such an amazing privilege to be able to do. And knowing that people are praying for us can help us through so many things. And the other thing is God's provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit. When we're Christians, God gives us his Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives within us to help us through whatever it is that life throws our way. So why don't we pray for each other? And why don't we ask God to help us by his Spirit so that we'd not be ashamed, but may exalt Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know um, that it is a huge um, challenge to see Paul so optimistic. If we're honest, I guess, even the most optimistic people here are probably not as optimistic, not quite as optimistic as he is. So, Father, we pray, rather than um, beating ourselves up or thinking, oh gosh, I'm not as good as Paul, maybe I need to try harder. Instead, please would you fill us with more knowledge of you, knowledge of your love, that our love may increase in knowledge and understanding. We pray, Father, that you would continue to make us prayerful, that as um, we pray for others and as we know others praying for us through whatever difficulties life throws our way, that that would give us courage, that that would help us not to be ashamed, to live for you, to tell others about you. But most of all, Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, whom you have promised to give us, to dwell within us when we put our trust in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you live in us, that you guide us, that you help us, that you give us courage when we don't feel very brave, and that you strengthen us. So, Lord, please, would we continue and grow in being the kind of people who pray for each other, who rely on each other's prayers, and who rely on your Spirit living within us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.